0: Over the next few decades, it is estimated that trillions of pounds will pass from one generation to the next, primarily from baby boomers who have ridden the wave of rising asset prices to their millennial children who haven't always been as lucky. But ever since the pension freedom reforms of 2015, the big question many savers have had is how am I going to turn my pension savings into an income so I can enjoy myself in retirement? So, what role does the pension have in the intergenerational wealth transfer? How can advisors help their clients make sure there are no nasty surprises on death? And what role does the advisor have in working with the whole family? I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor, and with me to discuss all this on this FT Advisor in Focus podcast are Gareth Davies, pension specialist at Scottish Widows, and Heather Owen, power planner at Quilter. Hello both.
1: Hi. Hi, Damien.
0: So... um, Heather, we'll start with you, if if I may. How has the role of uh, pensions in intergenerational planning evolved recently, particularly given uh, since uh, 2015?
1: Yeah, so particularly since 2015, as you say, since the pension freedoms came into force, um, they have become a much a much bigger role, played a much bigger role in passing on wealth between generations. Um, I mean, they are great investment vehicles in themselves. You get tax relief on the way in, you've got the 25% tax-free cash. Um, I think one of the really crucial benefits to using pensions in terms of intergenerational planning is that actually the members retain the full control over the pension whilst they're alive um which is obviously a, a, a big difference when you compare them to trusts for example um the other benefit to them really is that obviously they're, they're easy to understand most people have a pension um, and since the freedoms in, in coming into force in 2016 members can now nominate effectively anybody um that they wish to receive their pension
0: mm. and gareth uh, yeah,
2: I mean, I, I couldn't agree with Heather more. really. I think she, she's absolutely nailed it. But For me, and I know I'm biased because uh, I'm a pension specialist, but um, I make no apologies, really, for saying I think pensions are the most tax-efficient way uh, and simplest way to cascade wealth down through the generation. As Heather quite rightly identified, that the freedom and choice changes in 2015 that we, we all talk about, that the flexi-access drawdown, etc., freedom and choice aspect, um, but for me, one of the biggest changes, exactly as Heather said, is the ability uh, not just to leave it to a dependent beneficiary, but to now leave it to, to anybody who you wish to name on a nomination form. And for that cascade to continue indefinitely to subsequent nominees and successors, etc. cetera, uh, as Heather said, absolutely, you know, in most instances that's going to be outside of the estate. Uh, it's a simple proposition to understand when compared to a lot of the complexities of trusts and Uh, the accounting issues that come with that, periodic charges, exit charges, etc. We have none of that with pensions from age 55 currently, and if the client has full access, yet this asset will, uh, in the vast majority of instances, sit outside of their estate. So we almost see now pensions as as family trusts, really, for a lot of people. Um, They'll probably be the most significant asset that they own uh, outside of the primary residence, Uh, and certainly um, post-freedom and choice uh, one of many reasons I think why why people have um, looked at their options outside of uh, defined benefit pensions is is because of the ability to cascade these assets so simply and so tax efficiently uh, on death. Mm. Um, so uh, so yeah, I, I couldn't agree with the points Heather makes anymore.
0: Mm. And Gareth, to what extent have nomination forms uh, grown in, in importance in recent years? And and I suppose there are savers actually using them? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, the two parts to that question. Uh, the second part I'll take first, because the honest answer is I don't think we're sure. Um, I don't see any hard and fast uh, concrete statistics around the percentage of people who are using nominations. Um, But the first part, is is, is, you're absolutely right, Damien. It's it's absolutely vital that that people, uh, not only complete nomination forms, but regularly review them as well. Um, For the reason that that Heather and I uh, talked about, um, the asset could be the the biggest asset outside of the primary residence that the client owns. Um, And it's absolutely vitally important that uh, all of the options are available on desk. One of the other points I'll make, as well as nomination forms, is actually it's important that the product selection is kept up to date, the product choices. We all talk about, again, flexi-access drawdown as the client's approaching the time when they're going to start taking income from the pension. Um, But really, probably more pertinent reason why flexi-access drawdown is more important is because it enables beneficiaries flexi-access drawdown on the death of the client. Uh, and if that isn't an option before the client dies, it's impossible um, uh, to affect the transfer post-death to create that option. So if the client is in maybe an older legacy product um, that's effectively an accumulation-only product, um, that that's a significant risk, um, bearing in mind, obviously, none of us know when we're going to die, um, in the fact that if that client were to die and not have flexi-access drawdown available, um, it almost certainly means beneficiaries' flexi-access drawdown won't be available. So the only option to the product provider will be a straightforward return of funds. And as we know, once assets are outside of pension wrappers, it can be... Um, pretty jolly difficult to get them back in in a hurry. So, yeah, ensuring the product has the uh, flexi access drawdown options and ensuring the nomination is kept up to date uh, with all potential beneficiaries arguably needing to be named on the nomination form to ensure that the product provider at least has the option uh, of cascading those assets on via the most tax-efficient method, keeping the assets within the pension wrapper because people are named on the nomination form. And as I said, not just completion but regular review. Uh, certainly, you know, Deaths, divorces, remarriages happen regularly, um, and certainly in the run up to age 75, probably that's another key trigger point. So so we would certainly urge all advisors as part of their uh, drawdown review proposition to to encompass a a, a regular, well, as you said, a completion and then regular review of the the death benefit nomination form as well.
0: Mm. Heather, what's uh, your perspective?
1: Yeah, I I would absolutely agree with everything Gareth has said there. I think from an advice point of view and and working directly with clients, um, one of the key things really which we always want to make clear to clients is that your pension won't be passed down in accordance with your will. Um, That can be a, a big surprise for some clients who aren't aware of that, that actually with the pension falling outside of their estate, they may have their will up to date and ironclad and they're really happy with that. But they may not even have any idea that such thing as an expression of wish actually exists. So the first thing that advisors would always need to make sure, and we always recommend for them, is making sure that there is an expression of wish form completed specifically for that pension. And exactly as Kara says, making sure that that is updated regularly. We tend to say to clients, uh, we will review that every year at an annual review meeting but there's no harm in a client submitting a new expression of wish form every couple of years anyway, even if nothing has changed, even if they're just effectively changing the date, but their expression, what they want to happen to that pension remains the same year after year. What that will mean is that the provider can always be sure and that the trustees of the scheme can always be sure that they are as confident as they can be, though when they come to dealing out the the death benefits that they do have the members most up-to-date wishes at heart and and they've got them in place. Mm
0: -hmm. I suppose that that point that you make uh, Heather about um, you know I think many clients assuming that their will will just uh, do the heavy lifting for them is, is probably a good one but I suppose the flip side to that is that nomination forms themselves aren't binding so what do you think Heather that advisors should be doing to make sure there aren't any nasty surprises?
1: I think it's, I mean, the the fact that they're not binding is one of the key aspects that ensures that it does stay outside of the estate. So the fact that the trustees have the discretion rather than a sort of clear legally binding instruction from the member. Um, that's a really important point in terms of making sure that it, it stays outside of the estate uh, when it comes to inheritance tax. So that is really key. But the fact that they're not binding can lead, I would imagine, to some nerves with some clients or some hesitancy to be relying on pensions um, as a definitive form of intergenerational wealth planning. Um, but that said, I think having really, really clear instructions in place and as Gareth has said already and and I've just said um, making sure that that is regularly updated is really, really important and I think because every different provider, every different pension provider will have a slightly different layout in terms of their form and their expression of wish form, Um, there's not a sort of formally prescribed form that that will look the same across every different provider. So if if a member and if an advisor is finding the the form that they've got in front of them perhaps isn't quite capturing all of their wishes it's not quite got the space to capture the nuances that they uh, want to express in their expression of wish for example um, I would like my pension first to be um, passed to my spouse or my spouse considered first of all, but in the event that uh, they predecease me or they don't need it, please consider my children, my grandchildren, my neighbours, whoever it might be. I think that um, actually if they're finding that the prescribed form doesn't give that, that flexibility, there's absolutely no harm and we would really encourage actually writing an additional letter to go alongside that so submit the expression of wish form um with a note to say please see the the additional letter that i've sent and actually really just lay out what the expression of wish would be in your own words as clearly as possible Mm. um and then again keep repeating that every couple of years just so that the provider is aware of the the most up-to-date wishes
0: Mm. gareth before before i ask you on uh, your opinion on on um nomination forms being binding, how how do you, from the point of view of someone at Scottish Widows, what's your take on what Heather has just said about uh, the uh, issues that uh, providers need to sometimes take on board?
2: Yeah, I think, again, Heather makes some really excellent and valid points. You know, It's a bit of a double-edged sword, a a nomination form. If we assume, as you're quite right, it's just part of the fact that you can make them binding. I think it's fair to say probably in 99% of instances they're not. So the, the discretion uh, and the responsibility sits with the, the scheme administrator and trustee, which will be the, the product providers, as Heather quite rightly says. And, um, you know, the, the product provider will never have met the client. So the more information you can give them to work on uh, on the death of the client is, is really beneficial for all parties concerned. But you're absolutely right, you know, that both of you discussed the fact that, that there is no certainty around this. This does sit at the discretion, and that is the, the, the great... Um, Uh, It's a kind of trade-off. You can have certainty and make them binding, but you don't have the IHT benefits, Or you can have the full IHT benefits, which are are obviously significant, um, but it has to be paid out at the discretion of the scheme administrator. And I think an important point to remember, and and this was really brought home to me with actually the death of my father a couple of years ago, um, is that no matter how the nomination is completed, uh, and the more information, as Heather quite rightly says, the better as far as the provider is concerned, Product providers still have a duty of care to understand the full family position. you know that, that nomination may not have been updated for a long time. The client could have got divorced from the person who was originally named on the nomination and um, we wouldn 't be fulfilling our duties as a scheme administrator and, and or trustee by, by just looking at the nomination and following that as an instruction and I think this is a really interesting point in more modern times as we have blended families now quite common. I myself am from one of my parents' divorce when I was much younger, and it then becomes very interesting to ensure that everybody's on the same page. Um, but I think it actually becomes vitally important to ensure this, because what you may find is a family member, in my case, uh, as an only child of my father, I was contacted by my father's product provider, even though I wasn't named on the nomination. And I've got to be honest with you, Damien. A few years ago, that actually came as a surprise to me, and I think this would probably come as a lot of a surprise to a lot of advisors and their clients as well. The provider, which wasn't Scottish Widows, by the way, the provider did exactly the right thing. They they didn't just look at the nomination. They then contacted me directly. I wasn't mentioned on any of the paperwork on the nomination form. So, you know, it shows you that the lengths that providers quite rightly go to in these circumstances mm-hmm. to understand if I wish to be included for payment of the death benefit. Now, as I've already said before, I'm a non-dependent non- uh, beneficiary. I'm clearly over the age of 23, um, and so, therefore, I couldn't have had beneficiaries go down. But there's nothing to stop the, that provider making a payment to me as a, as a straightforward return upfront. front. And I think this is the, the, the dilemma we now find ourselves in. Intergenerational planning is a fantastic opportunity, but it could easily become a risk if we don't actually get on the front foot sort of, with these conversations We're British. We don't like talking about death, amongst many other things, I'm sure. Um, But the alternative is we leave these conversations until the client has died, and then things can get, as you can imagine, quite messy quite quickly uh, if if people, potential beneficiaries, are not all on the same page. So Heather's right. There'll be no one standard approach, probably, by product providers. uh, But more importantly than that... Mm Um, the provider won't just look at the nomination. The more information you can give them, the better, as we said previously. But the provider will probably go further in the event of the death of the client. And it's important everybody understands that before the worst happens, I think.
0: Mm. Uh, Gareth, I guess that makes it um, important for advisors to work with the whole family on this issue.
2: A hundred percent. I mean, I'm in the fortunate position, as you probably expect, somebody who's been in the industry 30 years. We have a family IFA. Um, so for us, it was very, very straightforward. My dad's wife uh, just kind of continued working with that advisor and, and everything kind of happened smoothly. He, he made the process, not just with the pension, obviously, but, but we're focusing on the pension today as, as painless as possible. Um, but the, the, the alternative is that the, the client dies. Nobody really understands what the process is at that point. Nobody understands what's going to happen next. And as I said, it's a threat to the advisor because clearly he may not be um, uh, the advisor for the family, as, as, as my IFA as our IFA is. Um, and as I said, from a tax planning point of view, what you don't want is a potential beneficiary to make uh, an ill-informed decision and actually end up having a payment outside of the pension wrapper, when, as i said clearly, the, your default position should always be to, to retain the monies within the pension wrapper on the death of the initial players. Almost regardless of what the plans are subsequently, you know, that, that, we're in this unbelievable position with pensions now. They, quite rightly, as said, they sit outside the client's estate, they sit outside the beneficiary's estate as well. Once they're passed down within the pension wrapper, they continue growing tax-free. If the client's died before 75, they're income tax-free in the hands of the beneficiary. Post-75, income tax is paid, obviously, when withdrawals are made. They don't count towards the recipient's LPA, albeit there's obviously an L- charges a benefit crystallization on death of the client. So, you know, there's there's two options here. You know, we can elect to not have these conversations and then have them at a time when, from personal experience in the last couple of years, this is probably the last conversation you want to be having, quite frankly. Um, Or we can try and get more on the front foot. And I think that's in everybody's interest. Obviously, the, the future... Beneficiaries who'll be in a, in, you know, as, as I was myself in a distressed position anyway at that time, and you're looking for as much help as you can get, and also in the advisor's interest to ensure that assets remain uh, under influence within that advisory firm for beyond the death of the initial claim, and as I said, for as long as possible, quite frankly. Mm.
0: Heather, from the point of view of somebody who's you know, involved in uh, the, the advice process, uh, do you agree that in, you've got to involve the whole family in these discussions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think for, for all of the reasons that Gareth mentioned, actually. So, um, firstly, you've got that um, that need to ensure that there aren't going to be or, or minimise the, the, the chances of any future challenges to expression of wishes. Um, so... At Quilter, we've seen over the last four years um, up to 20 percent of pension death claims um, issued out have have actually been delayed or maybe the option for the the money to remain reinvested has been lost. So they've lost all of the the, the kind of full suite of options because there was no expression of wish on file or perhaps. Perhaps there was some ambiguity or, or challenge from potential beneficiaries. So I think having the the, the wider family on board and, and aware of what their whoever it may be their parents, the the primary, the initial member, um, aware of what their wishes are and actually how they themselves would like to see their pension passed on um, is going to potentially help to reduce um, further challenges later on at what then is going to become quite an emotional and difficult time anyway. So Mm -hmm. I think having the family on board early on is really key. Um, It's something that I know a lot of advisors are often keen to have wider members of the family involved in ongoing financial discussions anyway. Um, obviously, that is uh, it is a very personal decision when it comes to the client, if they do want family members involved in their financial discussions. But it can certainly mean that there's um, wider understanding um, for the client and for their family um, later on as well. And then exactly as Gareth says, for uh, an advice business point of view, having an intergenerational wealth strategy in place and actually considering what are the risks from a, a mortality point of view to the business is really important as well mm-hmm. um, if an advisor's client bank is is largely made up their, their kind of assets under management concentrated with a, a few very large value clients um, and, and they pass away if there isn't a relationship with the wider family that can be a, a, a big risk to the, the overall mm. business by, by losing yeah. that business um there's also the mortality risk as well so if an advisor has traditionally um ab- kind of uh, obtained and, and met and found their clients um in quite a focused way if they focused on a particular demographic um if they've been to a um, class of 1949, alumni, reunion, and all of their clients have come from there. They're all going to be of a similar age, similar stage at life, which might mean that, okay, that's where the advisor's speciality is. That can be really beneficial. But it can also mean mm. that actually that there could be a, a significant um, loss of business at, at quite a short space of time if the family members aren't kind of on board as well. Mm. Um, So although the advisor may have a really fantastic relationship with that client and has been meeting them for 20, 30 years, if the wider beneficiaries um, don't have that same relationship, if they've not been there for the, the, the tea and biscuits and meetings for the last 20 years, they may have their own advisors. Um, they may choose just to go their own separate way, do a bit of research yeah. online and, and manage things themselves. Um, so it's really in an advisor's interest for their business point of view to engage the wider family, as well as absolutely for the clients and the, and the families themselves to all understand. The position yeah. um, um, we,
0: we've touched on on this issue i suppose throughout the course of this podcast but to, to finish up um there was some discussion you both might remember after pension freedoms about whether the pension had become the best vehicle for intergenerational wealth transfer for iht planning uh what do you think uh, heather
1: um I- I think it's definitely a fantastic go-to option um, where we stand at the moment. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's the best option for everyone. We probably can't be quite that empirical, Um, but certainly pensions uh, are a fairly a straightforward product. Um, some advisors and, and technical people and clients themselves may kind of disagree. There are obviously a lot of nuances there. But in terms of a, a product, a vehicle itself, almost everybody has a pension. Everyone can understand the, the basics of a pension, how they operate. Um, they can also be fairly cheap. To, to hold as well and, and to administer. Um, clearly, if the client or the beneficiary wants to take advice, there's a charge to that. Um, but otherwise, they can be fairly low cost and fairly cheap to, to run and administer. But I think they do come with their limitations as well when it comes to pensions. So depending on the age of the member, there could still be... Um, a tax charge to pay um, for the beneficiary when they start to take funds, uh, as Gareth talked about earlier on. Um, depending on the the age of the member when they've passed away, pre or post seventy five, there could be tax implications. Plus, there could be a lifetime allowance charge if if there is a test mm. um, on death of the member as well. Um, I think another key thing to consider it's it's not necessarily um, okay someone's passed away the pension is outside of the estate that's mine there's always um, a, a check when it comes to the, the HMRC so there'll be a form to complete um, where the HMRC will want to look into the recent activities within that pension as well over the last couple of years prior to the member's death and just scrutinizing things like have there been any recent transfers um, of the pension and or what was the nature of those? Have there been any unusual or out of pattern contributions into the pension? As, as the employer been maxing out the the carry forward allowance in the year prior to the member's death? Just really kind of trying to understand. Actually, is this simply a, a passing on of pension funds, or have they been trying to actually squirrel away more funds into the pension to pass on, sort of outside of the estate? Yeah. Um, so I think it's pensions are a really good option for passing on and it's almost a sort of default option as long as you've got the right, the necessary things in place, such as an expression of wish. Um, there are, of course... The other um, classic means of passing on wealth, so we've got trusts, mm. um, can be another really good way of, of passing on wealth um, in a cascading manner. Um, but of course, with that, the member loses the ownership of, of what they've uh, put into the trust. So benefit of the pension is that they do retain ownership. Mm. Um, they can also make lifetime gifts, um, which then, of course, are outside of the pension. So you're taking money in and gifting it to family members friends how they want to see but then you've got the seven year um, potentially exempt transfer rules. So um, th- there's definitely no kind of one size fits all which um, mm. any anyone working in the financial industry and working with clients within inheritance tax or, or estate planning um, circumstances will know that it's a very complex arena and it's very much um, what's the starting point with this client? What does their estate look like at the moment? What's their tax position? Um, but certainly pensions are a really, really fantastic option and it's something that alongside a a client's wider circumstances, we'll always make sure that the pension is set up exactly as we want it to do, Mm. the job we want it to do when the member passes. Gareth, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to wholeheartedly disagree with um, with Heather. I'm obviously biased. Pensions is kind of my world. Um, she's absolutely right, of course. You know, to do our BBC bit, other financial planning options are available. Um, I, I, you know, as I said, I, I'll be a bit bolder and say I think I think pensions are just fantastic. Uh, she's quite right to highlight. You know, you've got to be careful on doing any planning two years prior to death. There could potentially be reasons why pensions could be challenged for HT, um, and that's absolutely right to flag like that. But I think in the vast majority of instances. If people have um, looked at their pension as a a genuine retirement planning vehicle, firstly, and not tried to to kind of do anything um, a little bit controversial, as as Heather quite rightly points out, big contributions, uh, transfers in ill health, uh, these things prior to, you know, within two years of death certainly could be a red flag, absolutely. If we park all of that type of stuff, though, as I said, I I think there's there's not many vehicles where the client can retain full access. Um, There's no kind of survival period required. Uh, in terms of contributions going in, notwithstanding what we've both mentioned um, with the stabley uh, outcome, um, you know they retain full access, um, but they can cascade it down. Uh, there's no ongoing administration uh, requirements in terms of uh, trustees' duties and responsibilities that fall back on the client. There's no ongoing tax reporting. They're super simple, great value for money, um, and and obviously these days with pension platforms as they are, you've got you know all of the investment options that anyone could want. So, uh, so not disagreeing with what Heather says, I, I do acknowledge there are other options. But for me, yes, pensions are, are certainly uh, the best uh, and simplest way to
0: cascade wealth. <laughs> well, food for thought there. Though. Well, um, thanks very much, uh, Gareth. And thanks very much, Heather. And thank you very much, uh, you, for listening. And tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast.